Father, we thank you that we can praise you like this. Thank you for giving us voices, for giving us lives. Thank you that even when we leave this place, that you can be magnified in our bodies. That in all that we do, we can do for the sake of your glory. That our life can be a lifestyle of praise to you. And Father, as we open the word of God, through the power of your Holy Spirit, I ask that he would fill me, that he would speak powerfully through me, doing his work of convicting us in regards to sin, righteousness, and judgment, but also just to build up the body of believers here at Bible Chapel. May I put the spotlight on Jesus Christ. May he be exalted, and may we learn his ways. And so, Father, through your Spirit, teach us your ways. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're following at home uh, online, you couldn't be here with us this morning, know that we miss you, but you're going to need, need your Bible this morning. So everybody in here is going to need a Bible, or a phone that has a Bible on it, or a iPad or something like that. So get it out. You will not be able to follow along this sermon if you do not have your Bible, because we're going to do something a little bit different. We are Bible Chapel, so everyone get your Bible, hold it up, either your phone or your Bible, whatever it is, hold it up, okay? Joel, okay, it doesn't matter, it's the Word of God. Hold up your Bible, I'm going to see if you've got a Bible, okay? I'm doing this not for your exercise, just to see that you have a Bible, all right? Now, if I were to say, put it down, lift it up, put it down, that's a workout, that's, I'm not doing that to you, okay? So... I do want to begin, though, as we continue our series on angry birds dealing with conflict. You remember this from last week? Yeah. Yeah, I'm right there. A little thinner, obviously. 1990. And again, when I see this, what do I see? Yeah. My wife said hair. Okay. Yeah, it's hot. It's humid and I'm tired, okay? <laughs> yeah, so, 19, summer of 1990. Um, I told you about the, um, that was the summer of short shorts. I told you that story last week about be, the men being a stumbling block to those women. And, and the legalism that creeped into that, that group the last six weeks we were there without the staff members, okay? But I want to share another story from there. And it uh, is regarding, uh, uh, centers really around a, a young lady that was from the University of Notre Dame, which was really kind of rare. She was a part of the summer project. Now, if you're going to go to the University of Notre Dame, okay, it means you have bad taste in football, number one, okay? But number two, it also means that you at least have some sort of affiliation with the Catholic faith, okay? Unless you're an athlete and they're recruiting you there, okay? You go there because it's a great academic school, obviously, but it's also, you have maybe a Catholic background. And so there's a, a young lady in here that was on this summer project, and she obviously had a Catholic background. I think she was a Catholic Christian, so she still had part of that Catholic background, but she was a believer, and she obviously was involved with did everything we were doing here uh, within Camp Crusade that summer. Um, she was also a very competitive young lady, Okay. Um, she would uh, like go jogging with some of the men, or she would would wanted to, or maybe a couple times played basketball with us. Okay, so she had maybe a bit of an athletic background, but she was very, very competitive. Okay. Now, let me give you another example of a story to kind of paint a picture of the environment that was going on in this during that summer and with her. This these group of men right here. This was by my group, there was the, the staff member, and these men were all part of a Bible study. We were paired up, you can see maybe some of the, there's a girl right here and some other girls. We were paired up with them, and we would do um, activities together. Not a Bible study together, but activities. One activity that they gave us was a, um, we went to this park, and I was chosen to be the leader amongst my Bible study that I was in, and this other girl's Bible study, and we had to solve this problem when we were competing against other 
groups within the summer project. The following week, they brought us together, and they didn't select a leader. They just dropped the paper in front of us, and we had to solve this problem. And they were watching to see how we were going to select a leader in leadership development and all of that. Well, we got together as an entire group. Everybody in this picture got together at church after this second event and discussed what we learned. And this young lady that was from Notre Dame, very competitive, she was with, you know, they got the piece of paper, no leader was selected, and a man stepped up to lead, and guess who else stepped up to lead? She did. And I always remember what she said. She said, or, or, and they didn't do well. They were in constant conflict. And they both learned that we were not working as a duo, but whether we were working as a dual, D-U-E-L. So you have this competitive female in, in, in that legalistic environment. She has a legalistic background as well. And this is where the problem came in. And it all centers around this. Does everyone know what that is? Ictus. You know what ictus stands for, I think, in the Greek or Latin, Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. In your church, you know what they did? They were under such persecution to identify uh, another believer. What would they do? On the ground, they would go up there, and they would do the first half of this. And if the person finished it, they assumed they knew that they were a, a, a believer. That's the, the, the Jesus fish, the ictus fish, okay? Well, the tradition was at this summer project that at the end of the summer project, some of the men would go and they would get an ichthus tattoo in the inside right ankle. Okay? Just to serve as a reminder uh, of this summer project and that you are a Christian. Well, this young lady from the University of Notre Dame with that legalistic Catholic background coming out of all that, for her, getting a tattoo was sin. And I remember, it was not an issue for me, I didn't care if I got a tattoo or not, I remember walking down the stairs, uh, going to the main living room, and there was this big argument going on, this debate slash argument. There was her and the guys that wanted the tattoo, and they were discussing whether or not getting a tattoo was sin or not. Now, what do you think? Is it sin to get a tattoo? Okay, one says it is, and another says it isn't, okay? Now, she argued that your body is a temple and that you shouldn't defame your body in that way. They argued that Jesus Christ has a tattoo written on his thigh. What does it say? King of kings, Lord of lords, amongst other things. But the point being is that what I want to share the story about is what did these gentlemen do? Do you think that they put her interests above theirs? They put their right uh, and laid it at her feet and, and in order not to offend, didn't get the tattoo? I'm sure, I assume that there were some, but there were majority that went ahead and got the tattoo. Now, I admit that they probably didn't, I certainly didn't know all the stuff that I'm teaching you now about your Christian freedom. But a tattoo, like, you know, again, from last week, food in the, the story in Romans is a symbol of all non-moral issues, okay? And so, like, dancing and drinking and smoking in the Baptist church is sin, but the Bible doesn't speak to those are non-moral issues, okay? Now, if you come from a like uh, uh, if you're in a struggle with alcohol and you are an alcoholic and, and are coming out of that, then for you, guess what? Alcohol is sin, right? And I'm, if I'm drinking alcohol knowingly in front of you, knowing it can cause you to stumble, then I too am in sin. I've sinned only against myself. I've sinned against you and also who else have I sinned against? God. Okay. So we're talking about your Christian freedom and the use of your Christian freedom. So I want to do something different this morning. There is an incredibly large amount of scripture that is um, dedicated to this issue of Christian freedom and offense. There are three chapters in 1 Corinthians that we're going to look at this morning. 
Yes, you heard me correctly, three chapters. Go through pretty quickly, but start 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Everyone go there, 1 Corinthians chapter 8 through 10. Now, I've never attempted to do this in a, a, a sermon, but I believe that by going through this, we will gain more insight into our Christian freedom and the potential of offense. My hope in doing this is that you will see Paul's thinking, his line of reasoning. And I believe that this will enhance your understanding of your Christian freedom. Okay? And again, by Christian freedom, what do I mean? It was for freedom that Christ set you free. You've been set free from all the external moral demands, the ceremonies, the festivals, all that. They're all met by Jesus Christ. You are still bound by the moral law of God, which is, of course, what? The Ten Commandments. You still have to follow those. But every other gray area, areas of opinions, like tattoos and alcohol and smoking and anything, there's Christian freedom. But love limits your freedom. And we'll talk about that. First Corinthians chapter 8, is everybody there? Okay, starting verse 1. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. And here is some background. New believers coming from a pagan background believe that evil spirits would try to invade human beings by attaching themselves to food before it was eaten. And that the spirits could be removed only by the food being sacrificed to a god. This was the issue that the Corinthians were dealing with. And the meat that was not burned at the altar was sold at the market at a cheap price. And so after conversion, after becoming a Christian, these new believers avoided eating such food because it reminded them of their past pagan life and, of course, demonic worship. Now, the knowledge that Paul mentions here, that we all have knowledge, is this, that, the, that other gods don't exist. Evil spirits do not contaminate food. One is free to eat this meat. But this knowledge applied inappropriately. It leads to what? Arrogance. See that? It is better to apply this knowledge and exercise your Christian freedom in love, which will do what? Edify. It builds up. Verse 2. If anyone supposes that he knows anything... He is not yet known as he ought to know, but if anyone loves God, he is known by him. The knowledge that really matters is what Paul is saying is that not what you know and even what you think you know, because you don't know everything, what really matters is that God knows you. See that? And then the result of that will be that you will love God, and that's the proof that you know God. Okay? Verse 4. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. However, not all men have this knowledge. But some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. In other words, there is no other God but God the Father. So food sacrificed to an idol, it's irrelevant. You follow me so far? That makes food spiritually neutral. See that? It doesn't commend us to God or, or anything. Verse 9. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Folks, this is a strong warning. In other words, beware of using your Christian freedom to cause someone to fall into sin. And that isn't always an easy thing to do, is it? 
because we like our Christian freedom and we like our rights. Verse 10, for if someone sees you who have knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. That's pretty radical, isn't it? The best contemporary comparison I could think of, again, would be drinking alcohol. If a weaker brother, one who thinks it is wrong to consume alcohol, or in the story I started with, one who thinks getting a tattoo is wrong, and that weaker brother sees you in the case of alcohol dining out, you're drinking alcohol, he sees you, he could be tempted to drink alcohol in violation of his conscience. The attitude we should adopt is a drastic one. And this is hard, but it's drastic. In this case, it would be to never drink alcohol again. See that? I will never eat meat again. But you can also never drink alcohol just in public. You can do it privately. But I'm never going to do it in public so as not to offend a brother. So believers are instructed to go to great length to avoid causing an offense. That's the point. Even to the point where you will never eat meat again in this case. In other words, you'd become a vegetarian. And is this the way that we think about our Christian freedom? No, your silence says it all. My silence says it all, too. I'm in with you guys. I like my Christian freedom. After setting the limits of Christian freedom, Paul now deals with another potential offense. And this is ridiculous, but this is a, another potential offense. This is chapter 9. And the offense is what? His right to be supported financially. Am I not free? Chapter 9, verse 1. Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have a right, you know, probably want to underline that word, a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right, underline that word, to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas. Cephas is Peter. Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? Obviously, what is Paul talking about? His right. The scriptures were clear in this. He had a right to be financially supported. So Paul is appealing to his right in these first seven verses. Again, how many times is the word right used? It's repeated over and over and over again. I think it's three or four times. So Paul's Christian freedom includes the right to be financially supported by those to whom he ministers. Now that is very, very bold of Paul, isn't it? To assume to be paid for ministering to people as God intent, told him to and as God instructed people to pay the minister, right? No, it's not bold. It's just the law. It's the command. But what does he do with this right? Verse 8, I am not speaking these things according to human judgment. Am I? In other words, this didn't come from me. Or does not the law also say these things? For as written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. You know what that means? When the ox is working, you don't muzzle him. The ox is free to eat while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? 
Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written because the plowman ought to plow in hope. Hope of what? You plow in hope of receiving a harvest, of eating, right? And the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do we not more? Now watch this. Nevertheless, we did not use this right. But we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. If animals or oxen have the right to eat while working, shouldn't ministers of the gospel have a right to be financially supported by those to whom they minister? Of course, but in a surprising move, Paul refuses to demand his right. Instead, he introduces a new reason to avoid becoming a stumbling block. Paul was laying down his right so as not to offend and be a hindrance to the gospel. He would rather endure the hardship associated with foregoing his rights than impede the gospel of Christ. And in this case, what it meant was he would have to become self-supporting. And of course, we know that Paul was what? A tent maker. Verse 13, do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple, and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. But I have used none of these things. And I am not writing these things so that it will be done so in my case. For it would be better for me to die than have any man make my boast an empty one. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. For I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. What then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge, so as not to make the full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so I may win more. See, Paul set aside his right to be financially supported. He became a different kind of slave, a slave to financial self-support in order to remove a potential offense and win more people to faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, Paul is going to great lengths so as not to offend. He's going to great lengths to lay down his right. He just laid out for you from the Bible. He had a right to expect financial support. He didn't press that right. He laid it down for the sake of winning people to faith in Jesus Christ. And that's exactly his point in verses 20 and 23. To the Jews, I become a, as a Jew, so I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so I might win those who are without law. To the weak, I became weak, so I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. The priority for Christians is to do all things for the sake of the gospel. Now this type of lifestyle, you are laying down your rights in order to win people to Christ. See, it, that isn't easy. It requires a spirit-controlled characteristic. This is what Paul addresses next. Verse 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race will run, but, not, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. What spirit-controlled 
characteristic is he referring to? It's self-control, because what is the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. But it's often an overlooked fruit of the Spirit. Limiting your Christian freedom, it's not possible without self-control. Because your sinful nature, my sinful nature, our sinful nature, resists it. You see, believers are to regularly train their spiritual muscles of self-control so they will not disqualify both a weaker brother and themselves from the Christian race. Now, in the Old Testament, Israel is a sobering illustration of the misuse of freedom and a lack of self-control. They misused their freedom and fell into idolatry, immorality, and just general rebelliousness towards God. This lack of self-control, it disqualified them from receiving the Lord's blessing. And this is how chapter 10 begins. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Because of Israel's disobedience, remember the, the 12 spies that were sent into the promised land? They came back, 10 of the 12 said what? We can't overdo it, we can't take him. Only two, Joshua and Caleb said, we can do it. Because of their rebelliousness against God, their lack of faith, and mind you, what had they seen and experienced with their own lives and their own eyes? The 10 plagues, can you anyone name some of the 10 plagues? Locusts, frogs, death of the firstborn, hail, all that, okay? What else did they experience? Parting of the Red Sea. What else did they experience? Water coming from a rock. Bread coming from heaven. All of those miracles. They literally could see at night what? Fire. In the day they could see cloud. All right? They had all of that. And they still fell into idolatry, immorality, and general rebelliousness. And because of that disobedience, an entire generation was not allowed to enter the promised land. Again, only two people over the age of 19 entered, Joshua and Caleb. All the others died in the wilderness, and also it included who? Aaron and Moses. They didn't enter the promised land. Verse 6, now these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor less act immorally, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. They died in the wilderness because of their failure of self-control. They indulged themselves and their desires in the areas of idolatry, that's in Exodus 32, sexual immorality, Exodus 32, testing God, Numbers 21, and complaining, Numbers 16. They didn't, they were free, okay? The, Israel is a picture of our Christian freedom. They were literally slaves, they were set free. And how did they use their freedom? Idolatry, sexual immorality, you, you see where, Paul's going with this. Verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the end, ends of the ages have come, meaning the time of the Messiah. Verse 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men, you judge what I say. You know what he's saying there, really? It's really, it's tied up in um, verse 12. Is beware of overconfidence. 
Here's what's happening. Some of the Corinthian Christians, in the name of Christian freedom, they were attending idolatrous activities and festivals. See, it's one thing to eat a piece of meat that you bought in a butcher shop that might have been offered to an idol. It's one thing to go to somebody's house for dinner and eat something that they give you that may have personally and privately been dedicated to an idol. But it's something else to push that to the point where your freedom, you push your freedom to a point where you're attending idol festivals. That's a misuse of your freedom stemming from overconfidence. And Paul is saying, remember Israel, flee idolatry. Verse 16, is not the cup of blessing, and I'm going to have to spend some time explaining this to you, is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ. This is talking about communion. Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ. Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of, one, of the one bread. Look at the nation of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything. No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord in the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord in the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than him or he, are we? So in other words, everyone who partakes of communion fellowship with Christ, they fellowship with him when you take communion. This means you're actively involved in partaking of all that he is and all that he has done. That's what we did this morning. It also means that you enter into communion with everybody else who's also at the Lord's table. So you are as a corporately, we are fellowshipping and taking communion together. We are sharing in that together. In other words, there's a real union between the worshipers and the one being worshipped. That's Paul's point. Now, even though there are no other gods but God the Father, when someone does not have that knowledge, and who would we call someone who doesn't have that knowledge? A weaker Christian. And they imagine in their mind that, that, that his idol is a god. This is what happens. And you need to hear me on this. Satan sends a demon to act out the part of the imagined god. That's why Paul talked about one God, capital G, and no other small gods, G, but rather demons. You follow me there? So Satan, when, when, when a weaker believer thinks or, or an unbeliever thinks that there is a God, no other gods exist, what does Satan do? He sends a demon. And the demon acts out the part of the imagined God. Behind every idol is a demonic force that is deceiving the worshiper. And that demon does just enough supernatural works to keep the people worshiping that idol. And this explains why people in other societies bow down to a rock or a piece of wood all their lives. Behind that is not a god, but a demon. There's a demonic force behind that. And this also explains why John wrote this in 2 John 10, 11, you listen to me on this. It says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, meaning the gospel, <clears throat> do not receive him into your house. If someone is teaching you false doctrine, what do we call those people? False prophets, false teachers. If they come into your house, okay, do not receive him into your house. And do not give him a greeting. Watch this. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. It's the same thing as if you were going to an idol festival and you were participating with demons. Letting an unbeliever or a false prophet teach false doctrine come into your house, if you let him in, what are you doing? You're participating with him. And that demonic force behind that, he says, don't do that. Don't do that. This is why there are believers 
a young, and they've been in church for years that go to liberal churches and they just don't know any better what to do. And they keep going to the same church over and over again, even though they're pushing an agenda that they don't like. Why, we think, why would you stay there, right? Well, why would they stay there? There's a demonic force behind that that is keeping them there, that is influencing them, and they have to break away from that. You with me so far? Now, if someone enters your home teaching false doctrine, do not receive him or even greet him. Why? Because you participate. Think about it. You commune in his wickedness and the demon behind the wickedness. And to the Corinthians, Paul is saying this. When you go to an idol festival and eat the meat offered to an idol and drink the drink offered to an idol, even though an idol does not exist and all foods are spiritually neutral, you are identifying with what? The demon behind that idol. You're communing with that demon behind that idol. And it is inconsistent to commune with Christ at the Lord's table, right? And then go and commune with a demon at an idol festival. Yes, you have freedom. But don't use your freedom to take you to a place where you end up communing with Satan in his world system. This is a call to holiness, to be separate. Well, you've given your Christian freedom. You've been given freedom to live separate holy lives to God and not become like the world. If you misuse your freedom and participate in adultery, now watch this. You offend God. And you should write that down. You offend God. And I told you, don't be offensive. Don't bring about an offense. And certainly... Don't offend God. Because he says this, are you stronger than God that you can afford to anger him? See, we're free in Christ, but we must be mindful of how my freedom affects others and myself. We do not want to do anything that exposes us to demonic activity in our lives and bring the discipline of the Lord. Are you stronger than God? No, then don't. Do what the Israelites did. Use your freedom to worship idols and offend God and bring his discipline. Verse 23, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. That was what the response of the Corinthians was to Paul. All things are lawful. I'm free in Christ. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake for the earth is the lord's and all it contains if one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake but you're free to go to an unbeliever's house and eat whatever he puts in front of you but if anyone says to you this is meat sacrificed to idols do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience' sake. I mean not for your own conscience, but for the other man's. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? In other words, if you're in a home of an unbeliever and another weaker believer is with you and this food is offered to you and you find out that it is offered to an idol... Who are you going to offend? You say no to the meat. You don't offend the weaker believer because your love for another disciple is the strongest witness and testimony you have. Remember that? John 13, 34, 35. They will know you are my disciples by what? Your love for one another. So you offend the unbeliever but he will see that your love for him and not causing a weaker brother to stumble is so great that it will be a positive witness for him. All because you've chosen not to exercise your freedom. You didn't press your rights. You put the interests of others first. You became a servant to others. Now Paul gives us four principles for our Christian freedom. I put them up here for us. Okay. In verses 23 through 30. That build up others before building up self. Be other-centered over self-centered, verse 24. Practice Christian freedom over practicing legalism, verses 25 to 27, we just read. But, but 
It's humility before condemnation, verses 28 to 30. See, even though you may be a guest of an unbeliever and you do not want to offend him when he offers you a meat sacrifice to an idol, it's better to offend him, refuse to eat the meat, than offend the weaker believer who is with you, since love does what? It builds up. Love for other believers is the strongest witness that we have. Now look how it closes, verse 31. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also pleased all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so that they may be saved. And this is a perfect ending, isn't it, now, when you understand this? In all that you do, in the use of your freedom in Christ, let the glory of God be the end goal. Offend no one. Seek to please all men by seeking that which edifies them so that they may be saved. Now all this comes down to this, and I put this up here for us. There is a serious danger in causing offense. Okay, I want you to just turn your Bibles to Matthew 18. Matthew 18. We're going to close with this. I want you to see how serious it is to cause offense, to cause someone to stumble, to cause someone to sin. This is Matthew 18, verses 1 through 11. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as his child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it will be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks, for it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. But woe to that man through whom that stumbling block comes. If your hand or your foot cause you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into the fiery hell. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Folks, the disciples are causing offense. How are they causing offense? They're arguing over who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. But the greatest, Jesus says, is the one who humbles himself like a child and does everything in his power to not offend a brother and cause him to sin. But if you cause a weaker brother to sin, you'd be better off dead than alive. Do you see that? Jesus uses a graphic illustration. A millstone is this stone pulled by a mule that was used to grind grain. It was a massive stone. It weighed tons. And look what Jesus says. It'd be better if you took that stone, tied it around your neck, you're taken way out into the deep part of the sea, you're thrown overboard, and you drowned. Now, the Jews didn't drown anybody for any kind of crime. To them, it was a horrible, unimaginable, lonely, and painful end to your life. But the Romans did. It would be better to die that way than to offend. Do we see the seriousness of causing offense? It would be better to die this excruciating death than offend a Christian. I mean, is this what you think about when you offend someone? But Jesus continues. He employs another tool that really gets our attention. It's a graphic use of hyperbole to demonstrate the seriousness of the sin of offense. He uses the same language found in Matthew 5, 27 through 30. Let's take a look at this verse right here. 
You've heard said what? You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now verses 20 to 30, these will sound familiar to Matthew 18. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Does that sound familiar to what we just read? It does. It does. Now, Jesus applies the same language, the same illustration, to offense. I mean, is that what you think when you offend someone? Do you consider the sin of offense as the same as a sexual sin or the sin of adultery? I remember I told you that when I would do the, those man-maker weekends when I was Campus Crusade and we talked about you know, you know, a man in, in, in personal purity and a man's relationship with women and a man's relationship with men and a man's relationship with God. We would rotate, he would speak on the man and his personal purity because it was all about sexual immorality, pornography, masturbation, all that stuff. And you could hear a pin drop when you talked about this stuff. And then afterwards, I, I, when I taught on that, I had to go into a separate room and for the next hour and a half, I was counseling these young men who were just overcome because, with sin and guilt because of their past, their sexual past. It was as if sexual sins were the unpardonable sin. Yet, we go and we offend, even through the use of our Christian freedom and a right to use that freedom, but we will offend and we think nothing of it. But what does Jesus say? It's the same. It is a serious matter to offend and cause someone to sin or to stumble. So take drastic measures to avoid offense. It goes beyond them being caught in the trap of offense. You can destroy a brother, ruin them, defile them. Now there are some principles I want you to get regarding Christian freedom and offense. To kind of sum up this whole, these last two weeks. See, Christian freedom, use, it, use Christian freedom in love, okay? Because love limits Christian freedom. Use Christian freedom to build up. Use Christian freedom to, for the pursuit of peace. Use Christian freedom to serve others. Use Christian freedom to lay down your rights. Don't do this, though. Do not use your Christian freedom to offend. Do not use your Christian freedom to despise weaker believers. And it is better to live out your Christian freedom, though, than to live in legalism. Jesus said it is impossible that offenses will not come. The inevitability of conflict and the inevitable offense that follows is sure in this world. And so far, we've discussed a variety of offenses in these last two sermons. Food, finances, right, today. Idols, clothing, the story I shared about the short shorts and the unbuttoned shirts. Tattoos, the trials of life offend, Jesus offends, we brought all that up. I'm going to close with one more. One more thing that causes offense. You want to hear this? The gift of hospitality. What? This is a story from John Bevere in his book, Debate of Satan. He says, on my second ministry trip in Indonesia, I took Lisa, my children, and a babysitter. We arrived in Denpasar, Bali, a resort island. An elder in the church we were visiting owned a modest hotel in a very noisy section of town. We had traveled a long distance. We had very little sleep. We were exhausted. That night, we were awakened several times by loud noises and barking dogs. We only stayed overnight and did not get the rest we needed. The following day, we continued on to Java and ministered for the next two weeks on a very busy schedule. We had, one, we had only one free day in that two weeks, and that was for travel. In one 24-hour period, we ministered five times at a church with 30,000 members. At the end of the trip, 
we were scheduled to go back through Bali, and the pastor informed us that we would be staying at his elder's hotel again. We were not thrilled about being in those conditions again after two solid weeks of ministry. You get where we're going with this now? At breakfast on the morning we were to leave, Java for Bali, a precious lady offered to pay for our accommodations at one of the finest resort hotels in Bali. I was so excited because we would get to rest and stay in a beautiful place. And as we left the restaurant to pack, Lisa, my wife, told me she didn't have a good feeling about accepting this lady's offer. The interpreter and I reasoned with her and said it would be fine. Again, on the plane from Java to Bali, she said she didn't think we were doing the right thing. And I was foolish and didn't listen to her. I told her it wouldn't cost the church anything and we would be fine. When we arrived in Bali, she pleaded with me at the baggage claim one more time, but I ignored her. When we met the pastor, I told him that we would not stay at the elder's hotel because of the woman's offer. He seemed uneasy with what I had said, so I asked him what was wrong. Fortunately, he was open with me and said, John, this will offend the elder and his family. They've already reserved the room for you, and they're sold out for the evening. I had also apparently offended the pastor because I did not appreciate what they had arranged for us. Finally, I told him we would stay at the elder's hotel and pass up the woman's offer. The Lord dealt with me about my attitude. I knew the pastor was hurt. I saw the demeaning. I saw that demanding my rights had offended this brother and that it was a sin. I asked for his forgiveness. He forgave me. I hope. I don't have to learn that lesson again. <laughs> a gracious gift of a hotel room is a cause for an offense. Woe to the world because of offenses, and it is impossible that offenses will not come, which is why, folks, you have better learned to embrace conflict and work through any hurt feelings and do it fast or else you give the devil an opportunity. Amen? So beware of causing offense. Put on your spiritual radar, set it to high definition level. Beware of causing offense. And you will, because you're blind to it, but when you do cause an offense, learn from it, grow from it. And be prepared to be offended by the people in this room. Like Richard's leaving right now and I'm offended. <laughs> I'm joking. He's out there talking to Craig, so let me pray. Lord, thank you for this time this morning and for your words to us. We want to be used by you for your own glory's sake. We want to learn to not walk in a manner that is going to offend people. We don't want to be the cause for any offense. Remind us of the seriousness that comes with causing offense. It's the same thing as if we were unfaithful to a spouse and we committed adultery. It's as if we'd be better off dead than to cause someone to sin. And so Lord, burn these truths, truths deep within us, we pray this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.